This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You lost all constitutional rights the moment you walked through that door. When the judge sat down there, I sentenced you to 10 years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. You walked in that door, you was a number. And the inmate understood that. folks to another episode of the behind gray walls podcast a podcast about the old idaho state penitentiary and the men and women who were incarcerated and worked here my name is anthony and i am in my office with samuel hey everybody and on the line with sky hi how's it going sky how's texas Oh, it's hot. What? I mean, I, yeah, it's shocking. I know. It last This last Sunday, it was 100 degrees, um, and I'm trying not to think about it. Um, but how are you guys? Good. Cold. Yeah. <laughs> no. Jerks. Crisp, crisp fall here, Sky. Oh, it's my favorite time of year. <laughs> I, it's my favorite time of the year, and I'm every year that I have been in Texas, I have just missed the fall so intently and i cannot believe that a year ago i was in sun valley just doing research as the leaves were turning and it was cold in the mornings and oh oh yeah oh it's good for my soul (laughs) i mean i very much echo the sentiments of anne of green gables author ella montgomery who said i'm so glad that we live in a world where octobers exist or something like that someone is very upset that i absolutely butchered that quote but i stand by it yeah (laughs) i love october what else is going on with you guys? Anything fun? Work-wise, we're very focused on all of our events happening this month. This past weekend was Sleepless and Stripes, which was fantastic. Thank you, everybody, for coming. This upcoming weekend at the Old Pen, we are having behind-the-scenes tours and a paranormal investigation next weekend, and then our big Squawky and Spirits event at the end of the month. It's going to be fun. Oh, yeah. Sam is, he's helping build our haunted houses. It's going to be scary. Haunted houses with an S. Two haunted houses. Yes. (laughs) Sam, I just, I would never have guessed that you were a guy who was into spooky things. Uh, I know. It's a shock. (laughs) Yeah, everybody stay tuned for our Halloween episode. It's going to be spooky. Dropping it on Halloween. It's a historic occasion. Yeah. (laughs) I'll make sure to include a few of those ghost stories and presentations at Squawky and Spirits if people want a sneak peek of the Halloween episode this year. Well, good. Sounds like you guys are uh, are busier than ever, or as busy as always, or just real busy. You know, I, I don't even know anymore. It's <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, do I feel that. <laughs> oh, boy. Yes. Well, should we get to it? Yeah. Are you starting this week? I will start this week. Yeah. Today, I am covering William Franklin Doddle. 
My sources are uh, files and documents from the Idaho State Archives, historic Idaho statesmen from NewsBank, hosted by the Boise Public Library, the Library of Congress Chronicling America, Newspapers.com, Vigilante Days and Ways by Nathaniel Pitt Langford, Williams Findagrave.com profile written by his great-granddaughter, fantastic source, the National Register of Historic Places inventory nomination form for the Stricker store and home site from August 30th, 1979, entered by Patricia Wright, an architectural historian for the Idaho State Historical Society, and Merle Wells, famous historian here in Idaho, Wikipedia articles on the history of Nauvoo, Illinois, Joseph Smith, Joseph Smith's 1844 presidential campaign, killing of Joseph Smith, winter quarters in northern Omaha, Nebraska, the City of Franklin website information about early Franklin history, a document titled The Army of the U.S. Historical Sketches of Staff in Line with Portraits of Generals in Chief, the 12th Regiment of Infantry, by Lieutenant Charles W. Abbott, Jr. on the United States Army's Military History website, a collection of all the participants in James C. Snow's company in 1852 from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints website, a transcript of John Clark Dowdle's autobiography and diaries from circa 1884 to 1908, specifically volumes 1, 1 through 3 from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints website. Now, I don't want to get ahead and spoil anything, but are we talking about a Mormon today? <laughs> you could say that, yes. Okay, all right. Yeah, this well, is... Well, then I, I... The story of my people, I can't wait. Same, yeah. But you two, you know, were raised in the religion. Uh, I wasn't, but I have... Most of my family was. So please correct me if I mispronounce things. I apologize. I, you know, was not raised with a lot of this history. So a lot of it was new to me, and I'm excited to hear your takes on my interpretation of these events. So. Uh, pause. Sam, I did not know you were raised LDS. Yeah, I was raised in Rexburg, Sky. I was raised in, like, the commune. <laughs> the commune. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I didn't know that. <clears throat> yeah, I had, like, a really, like... My family wasn't, like, super orthodox, but I grew up in, like, a community that was, like, crazy orthodox. And, right, like, right. I, I almost went to school in Rexburg. I so. do think, from what I've heard about the current president, the church is actually currently working really hard to start talking about uncomfortable topics. I can't imagine anything is going to be over-inflammatory as long as it's based on historical sources, which I know they are because it's you. So you're not just here to bash the church. You're here to tell the story. So I wouldn't worry about it, honestly. Hopefully we're starting conversations. (laughs) Yeah. As some listeners may know, I've been promoted to the position of Historic Sites Administrator. So besides managing the old Idaho Penitentiary, I also oversee the 1862 Pierce Courthouse in northern Idaho in the city of Pierce, Idaho, which is managed by the J. Howard Bradbury Memorial Logging Museum. Also, the structures of the oldest Idaho pioneer settlement in Franklin, Idaho, in southeast Idaho, just north of Logan, Utah, which is managed in partnership with the amazing Franklin, Idaho Pioneer Association. And we'll hear more from them in next season. And the Stricker home site in Rock Creek Station, which is managed by the Friends of Stricker. 
Today's subject had many connections to both Franklin and Rock Creek, so it was pretty amazing to tie both of the histories of those sites into this. It's been a super amazing year working with these passionate folks, and I actually look forward to highlighting all three sites and their importance to the development of Idaho in the podcast in future seasons. To learn more about the Stricker home site and Rock Creek Station's history, tune in this Saturday to hear from the president of the Friends of Stricker organization, Jennifer Hills. She's an incredible resource and leader, and like everyone in that organization, volunteers countless hours maintaining the site, sharing its history, and hosting events. Rock Creek Station and the Stricker home site are in Hanson, Idaho, which is roughly 20 minutes southeast of Twin Falls and just south of Kimberly, Idaho. Lewis and Clark passed through northern Idaho in 1805 and returned along the same route the following year. The Rock Creek area remained unexplored by European explorers until the summer of 1812 when an expedition led by Robert Stewart under the John Jacob Astor Company looked for a new route from Oregon to St. Louis south of the Rocky Mountains. The party of fur traders and explorers camped on Rock Creek in 1812, several miles downstream from where the Stricker site now currently resides. In 1830, a beaver was actually trapped on Rock Creek by a member of the Hudson Bay Company, and four years later, Fort Boise was established. In 1843, during the Great Migration along the Oregon Trail, John Fremont, the namesake for Fremont County, Idaho, and his company camped on the banks of Rock Creek as he took his second expedition mapping routes to Oregon. Countless others passed through and stopped on the banks with occasional skirmishes with Shoshone-Bannock tribes in the area over the next two decades as it served as a resting point along the route. Then gold was discovered in northern Idaho near Pierce in 1860, spurring the gold rush that we discussed in Season 7. The discovery of gold in the Boise Basin in 1862 spurred the rapid development of mining towns in southern Idaho. Idaho Territory was established in 1863, and a year later, Ben Holliday, America's stagecoach king, who previously developed stage lines during the California Gold Rush, you know, the 49ers, was awarded a contract with the United States Mail between Salt Lake City, Utah, and Walla Walla, Washington. The home station for his line, the Overland Stage Line, was chosen at Rock Creek, and in August of 1864, the first stage arrived. Nathaniel Pitt Langford described the Rock Creek Station well in his book Vigilante Days and Ways, which I recommend to anyone interested in this period. He writes about it in chapter 25 and says, quote, Many of the home stations on the stage lines where meals were served were favorite camping grounds for freighters engaged in transportation of merchandise from the railroad to the interior towns. On the road between Kelton and Boise, the station at Rock Creek, 100 miles distant from the railroad, was kept by Charles Trotter. It was one of the few stopping places where palatable meals were served. <laughs> its reputation in this respect won for it a widespread popularity with the traveling public. And in process of time, a small settlement sprung up around it. A store was opened where immigrants and others could obtain provisions, clothing, and such other necessaries as they needed. Naturally enough, many of the newcomers were rough in their tastes, fond of gambling, drinking, and the athletic sports common in an unorganized community. The influence exercised by a few citizens of the better class was all that saved the little settlement from lapsing into lawlessness and crime, end quote. So home stations were typically these larger stopping points, and they were run by a family who lived on site. 
I've talked about it many times, but Shoshone Falls, the Niagara of the West, is nearby, and there are amazing write-ups about the folks passing through Rock Creek Station and taking day trips to the falls. A letter from a visitor was published on August 20th, 1864, in the Idaho World newspaper that said, quote, When we arrive at Rock Creek, one day's travel this side of the Salmon Falls Ferry, we left one morning for the Great Falls and took a straight line for the Snake River. At the distance of four miles, we came upon them all unawares, as the bluffs are over 3,000 feet high on each side. Consequently, you could not hear them. There we commenced the descent to the falls on horseback to within a few hundred yards of the awful precipice. There, fastening our horses, we soon descended to a level with the river above the falls. The sight that then broke upon the view is too sublime to describe by one so little capable of doing it justice as myself. I have visited Niagara many times, but this fall eclipses it far. Should you ever again cross the plains, don't go by the falls without visiting them, as it is well worth one year of one's life, end quote. Uh, now listen, I love Shoshone Falls as much as the next person. Oh, Sky, you better not badmouth Shoshone Falls. I love I'm it. I'm not badmouthing it. I think it is wonderful. I think it's lovely. <laughs> I just think to say that it eclipses Niagara, it feels um, a, a bit... Um, exaggerated <laughs> sky it because sounds having like been to both i just i just think that maybe niagara's a little, it's just bigger there's just more water it's just louder i just but i love to show falls it's great <laughs> it, it sounds like it would be worth one year of your life <laughs> i mean maybe back then but <laughs> I have to share this story and just encourage everybody to go to Shoshone yeah. Falls. It's so many I love. But, but please, also, please do go to Shoshone Falls. But please don't go being like they say it's better than Niagara because <laughs> you might be disappointed. I just, I'm just trying to temper expectations here. You also have to think of like what it would be like to do a side trip in the middle of crossing the plains yeah. and especially after going through like the huge deserts of Wyoming and that part of Eastern Idaho, you'd probably be like, Whoa, where did this waterfall come from? Yeah. I think that's it. But I also have never been to Niagara. So maybe someday I'll, I'll say differently, but I will say go to Shishoko. And if you, you, yeah, if you've never been to Niagara, it is amazing. It's the best waterfall you've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> so, Back to my subject. I'm just trying to set everything up that this is a very undeveloped area. Pioneers are still kind of establishing in this, you know, traditionally tribal area. Today, I'm covering William Franklin Doddle. And if you were to open our index of prisoners, he is listed twice, just one page away from our first 11 prisoners we covered when the old pen opened in 1872. With this period in history, it can be difficult to pin down all the facts with precision. The country was in a state of westward development and reconstruction after the Civil War a decade before. Regardless, I do have a roadmap developed by a family member of William Doddle. William's great-granddaughter, Wilma Dean Patterson Webster, wrote a very detailed genealogy on his findagrave.com page, and many documents are cataloged to him on Ancestry.com. 
According to his family tree, William was born on February 4, 1838 in Moulton, Alabama to Robert Dowdle and Sarah Ann Robinson. William was the youngest of nine children. He had four older brothers and four older sisters. The family actually joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in 1844 and, like many converts, made plans to join other members of the church in Nauvoo, Illinois. Nauvoo is Hebrew, and it is a word meaning to be beautiful. Now, 1844 is an important and tragic year in LDS history. Joseph Smith, prophet and founder of the religion, was serving as the head of the church, the city's mayor, head of the municipal court, general of the militia, and running for president of the United States. When a paper from a recently excommunicated church member called the Nauvoo Expositor threatened to expose the church and Joseph Smith's practice of plural marriage, Joseph gathered the city council. The council resolved to destroy the newspaper. The militia entered the office of the Nauvoo Expositor, destroyed the press, and burned every copy of the newspaper. Ex-church members and other citizens from nearby cities called this unconstitutional and called for Joseph and his brother to be arrested. The Smith brothers, along with other church leaders, were arrested and housed in the Carthage City Jail to await trial. On June 27, 1844, a mob of 150 to 200 men, their faces painted black with wet gunpowder to hide their identities, stormed the jail. Joseph fired at the attackers and attempted to flee through a second-story window, but was shot multiple times. He fell from the window. When he hit the ground, a member of the mob fired a final bullet into this church leader. Joseph is the first candidate in the United States history to be killed while running for president. It appears that the Doddle family arrived in Nauvoo late to the party in 1845, a year after this incident a time when most members of the church in the city were making plans to flee and follow the new church leader, Brigham Young, to a new uninhabited region in the West. Now, according to Wilma, the Doddle family crossed the Mississippi River during the winter of 1846 and camped with over 2,000 other members of the church in North Omaha, Nebraska, in what is dubbed Winter Quarters, as they waited for winter to pass so they could complete their trek west. They built houses and cabins to last through the winter. A September 10, 1847 article in the Illinois State Register titled The Mormons described the impressive settlement at winter quarters. Quote, they had planted immense fields of corn to the extent it is estimated of 30,000 acres and other grain and produce. They have built also a town called Winter Quarters, which already contains a population of some 7,000 souls. This town is entirely picketed in. It was represented that the Mormons are on friendly terms with the Indians and rarely molest them, although they are accused of occasionally stealing cattle, end quote. Now, William's father died just days before this article was released while living at Winter Quarters on September 5th, 1847. He's listed on a plaque at the Mormon Pioneer Cemetery in Omaha, Nebraska, quote, at the burial grounds of Winter Quarters after November 15, 1846, commencing at the northwest corner, Robert Dowdle, 50, end quote. So Wilma wrote that William was baptized a year after his father's death in Winter's Quarters in 1848 at the age of 10. William's oldest brother was working with the government freight wagon group and took the family across the plains to Iowa. 
1852, William joined the James C. Snow Company to Utah. The Doddles departed Canesville, Iowa, now Council Bluffs, on wagon on July 5, 1852, and arrived in Salt Lake Valley three months later on October 10, 1852. The LDS Church website has this incredible collection of scanned and transcribed documents referring to pioneer history, and one document happens to be William's brother John's autobiography. John describes his trip west, writing, quote, We had a very prosperous journey over the plains, which was very romantic to us while gazing on its many landscapes and large herd of buffalo, antelope, and other game, more particularly east of Fort Laramie. Nothing of importance occurred till we reached the Sandies. At this point, I was taken sick with the mountain fever, but was not confined to my bed until we reached the Green River. The fever became so severe I was forced to give up and take my bed, thus leaving my mother, Sarah Ann Doddle, and younger brother, William Franklin Doddle, to look after the team and traveling as best they could. I, being so very sick, cannot remember much of the road or country from there till reaching Salt Lake Valley, this being the first place that I left my bed, end quote. So this treacherous, dangerous trip, and then to get sick and stricken to bed. It's fortunate that he survived. So did 14-year-old William, and the Doddle family settled in Provo, Utah, where William began to learn how to farm. On August 2nd, 1863, William married Esther Ellsworth, an 18-year-old woman whose family moved to Utah in 1848, just a few years before the Doddles. William and Esther moved to Franklin around 1865. They began to build a family and establish a farm in the young community made up of fellow Latter-day Saints. Now, Franklin was originally settled in April 1860 by 13 families of pioneers who believed they were actually in the Utah Territory. Within months of arrival, around 60 families called Franklin home. It wasn't until 1872 when a land survey was completed that it was discovered that Franklin was in fact within Idaho's territory. It is now considered Idaho's oldest settlement, despite Utah's original claim. And we'll cover a lot more about Franklin and the historic site next season as I interview staff who are authorities on the community's history. In the 1870 census, William was listed as living in Franklin under Cache County, Utah, and he's listed as a farmer with his wife Esther and his four children ages six months to five years old. He's probably raising wheat, potatoes, corn, and other crops on the land. There are many podcasts about Latter-day Saints history, but I will simplify and say that there is a long history of the church and its members being villainized in newspapers. After it was discovered that Franklin was in fact part of the Idaho Territory in 1872, Idaho newspapers regularly reported on the area, which became part of Oneida County. The Idaho Statesman published an article on January 3rd, 1874, titled The Saints in Idaho, and it talks about, quote, old-time tactics of the thus-transferred saints, end quote, which implied serious allegations of tax fraud from the members of the LDS community. The article noted that in 1872, only 485 children were living in the area, and the following year, the number bumped up to nearly 2,000. Quote, or an increase in one year of 1,340, exclamation point, end quote. Many felt that these communities were making false reports to receive more money from the government. 
quote, the same county pays into the territorial treasury for 1873 less than $3,000 in taxes, while other counties pay about $36,000, and yet Oneida draws out more than one half of all the school fund, and nearly all of that their taxes of every kind amount to. Thus, it will be seen that the saintly system of making the Gentiles support the church under the forms of law are attempted by these people everywhere they go. The habit of plundering other people, quote, to build up Zion, end quote, is a fixed one, and no change exhibits itself in any place, end quote. So a sentiment that I saw countless times in newspapers while digging through this uh, research. And you'll hear this sentiment throughout this episode as newspapers portray William and his criminal activity. Tragedy struck the Doddle family in 1873. William's brother John was working in Tintic, Utah, which is situated at a western point in central Utah, west of Provo and Nephi. Up in Logan, near Franklin, his 16-year-old and 12-year-old daughters were walking from one room of the house to another with their 9-year-old friend carrying a kerosene lamp. As they walked outside, the wind blew and caused the flame to go into the bowl of kerosene, which exploded and threw hot oil all over the girls. Ugh. The neighbor, Charles Wright, wrote to the newspaper and said, quote, To give you some idea of the terrible affair, the explosion was heard nearly 40 rods from the house, and the blaze reached a height of 10 feet. The poor girls running to and fro was a sight that was horrible in the extreme, end quote. So this neighbor quickly ran over and he attempted to douse them with water from the wash tub setting nearby, but the burns would prove fatal. A telegram was sent to John, but he never received it. According to the newspaper, quote, feeling a foreboding of evil, John left for home and did not learn of the accident until he arrived at Ogden and a junction was handed to him on the railroad platform. He felt much overcome at the sad intelligence. His daughter was buried before he reached his home, end quote. Both girls ended up dying from their burn wounds. I can only speculate that this tragedy impacted the whole Doddle family. It's horrific. And unfortunately, there were so many of those. And they still happen. It's still a a dangerous thing. Anyone camping with a kerosene lamp, like, just be very careful. Sometime before the summer of 1874, William was involved in a shooting scrape in Rush Valley, Utah. And Rush Valley was a mining town, so William would most likely have been trying to maybe get his hand into that industry. Unfortunately, I could not find any other details about this scrape, but it appears William's move toward criminality began somewhere around this year. In July 1874, Captain J.L. Vivin, commander of the Company C 12th Regiment Infantry of the United States Army, was stationed at Fort Hall in the Idaho Territory. Captain Vivin and his company were responding to hostilities between local tribes and pioneers. Vivin owned a valuable horse, but that July... It went missing. Citizens and soldiers were alerted to the theft, and it was reported that William Doddle had been seen riding the horse. Captain Vivin sent some of his men to search for William and the prized horse, and one of them finally caught up to William. Quote, Being afraid to attack Doddle, who was armed, he, the soldier, simply said he was after the horse, and that the captain would give him $5 to take it to him. End quote. The soldier actually reported that William responded, 
I'll give you $5 to keep your mouth shut. (laughs) William was arrested and brought before the newly appointed acting Utah Justice James Parker, who acquitted William of the charge. Why? Well, William proclaimed after leaving the courthouse a free man, quote, they dare not convict him as he knows too much of the innocent blood they had on their hands, end quote. Now, according to this fascinating article in the Salt Lake Tribune titled, Notes from Franklin, a bishop postmaster calls upon the saints to break the laws, priestly extortion and highway robbery in the church, implicit obedience and consummate old asses. <laughs> it's the longest title and it just... Uh, I don't know, it seems pretty great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, so it makes you want to read the article, so it works. Yeah, and I read it multiple times and I'm still slightly confused. I think <laughs> I needed to be there to really understand everything that was going on, but... Many deals were supposedly taking place in and around Franklin between community leaders who were attempting to charge fees to travel on the publicly purchased and maintained roads. So, William was referring to they as the judge and officers who were possibly in on these kickback schemes to allow this grifting. Quote, they is referred to the justice and officers. If not to them, the question is to whom did they refer and whose innocent blood have they on their hands? Indeed, a hard question to answer in Utah, where the innocent blood of the murdered victims calls aloud to heaven to avenge them in due time, and that day is dawning, end quote. Two weeks after the story dropped, the Salt Lake Tribune published a story saying, quote, Justice James Parker was not a justice at all, but only a usurper. An inquiry being made, it is found that James Parker was the proper person who should have qualified prior to January 1873, but having failed then or since to file a bond and take the oath of office as required by law, he has not any right to the office whatever. He stands between two stools, one of which is ignorance and the other willful criminality. A tool or a rascal, he can take his choice, end quote. We could do a whole podcast about these heated politics and the journalism, the Gilded Age. So I'm just going to leave Justice James Barker for another day, and we'll let you know that his acquittal did not stick. I know territorial authorities wanted to try William for the theft of Captain Vivin's horse. On the morning of September 2nd, 1874, two months after this first trial, William was arrested again by U.S. Marshal A.K. Smith of Utah and lodged to the city jail to await a transfer to Idaho for trial. An October issue of the Corinne Daily Mail listed William along with several other men in the jail awaiting trial and included a jeer towards a select few saying, quote, Besides a host of warrants issued for saintly criminals, enough to fill our extensive jail yard, many of whom are liable to be caught, notwithstanding the church authorities, are to a man using every endeavor to protect them, end quote. Clearly, the words saintly and church with a capital C pointing to the Latter-day Saints, prisoners that were housed there and awaiting trial. In November, William was brought before an Idaho judge where he pled guilty to horse stealing. He was sentenced to one year at hard labor in the Idaho Territorial Penitentiary beginning November 19, 1874. U.S. Marshal Joseph Pinkham and Deputy Marshal M. Morgan brought the men to Boise to serve in the penitentiary. Quote, 
There were five of them, and all wearing chains. A few more terms of court like the present one in the third district, and the name of Judge Hollister will be a terror to evildoers, end quote. Williams served in the territorial prison as one of five United States prisoners and six territorial prisoners. The total prison population in the territorial prison building was 11 men at the time. The prison was literally a single territorial prison building and a couple of small houses where guards and the warden lived on the premises. There was no fence, no prison yard, no work, nor recreation for prisoners in the early 1870s. It was not affordable to find work for prisoners that was worth the expense to train them and cover the risk of allowing such a small handful of men to leave the prison grounds. In July 1875, it was noted that the prison warden, Thomas Morrow, resigned after serving at the prison for four years. The newspaper described him as an efficient, faithful, and kind overseer of the prison. And when asked why he left, the newspaper summarized his response saying, quote, There is so much confinement, so little to do, and the place so lonesome, he felt as if he was rusting out his life and will seek more active business where he can have society and be among people, end quote. Even the prison warden had little to do with his time other than oversee these men who sat quietly in their cells focused on penitence. Soon after leaving his position as warden, he was elected to a more exciting position of town marshal. <laughs> so there's no mention of William's release after completing his term on November 19th, 1875. Earlier that week, the International Organization of Good Templars, the IOGT, a fraternal temperance group promoting abstinence from drugs and alcohol, met at the Boise Templar Hall. Attorney Jeremiah Brumback was a prominent member of this group in attendance, and many listeners from Boise might actually recognize the name Brumback while visiting Boise's North End neighborhood near Hyde Park and Camelsback. Mr. Brumbeck owned the land in the area and even changed the name of 17th Street to Harrison Boulevard in 1890 in honor of President Harrison, who signed Idaho into statehood. Soon after his Templar meeting, Jeremiah Brumbeck discovered that one of his horses was missing. On December 4th, the Idaho statesman published an article titled, Caught! Quote, Just as we were going to press, we learned that the thief who stole Jay Brumbach's horse about 10 days ago has been caught at Rock Creek Station on Overland Road and proves to be William Doddle, generally known here as Brigham. He had just served a year in the penitentiary for stealing a government horse at Fort Boise. He will be brought in on today's stage. The particulars will be given in our next issue, end quote. So, of course, this last-minute print misspelled William's name and listed Fort Boise instead of Fort Hall as the location of the previous crime. You may have also noted the line, quote, generally known here as Brigham, end quote, the leader of the LDS Church after Joseph Smith, of course, Brigham Young. William had made it 175 miles from Boise. The following week, on December 7th, the Idaho statesman described that William had been, quote, lying around town with nothing to do, end quote, when the horse went missing. The undersheriff, Earl Race, immediately suspected William when Jeremiah reported the horse missing and suspected that William was probably heading back to his family in Franklin. Earl sent a description of William and Brumbach's horse via telegraph and letters to Mr. Trotter, the attendant of Rock Creek Station, and other authorities down the line. William headed south and crossed the Snake River at either the Owyhee or Monahan's Ferry and headed towards Rock Creek Station. 
He reached Rock Creek around December 2nd and offered to sell his stolen horse to Mr. Trotter for $75. Mrs. Trotter happened to be preparing one of the renowned meals there at the site, which William helped himself to as Mr. Trotter, quote, looked at the horse and satisfied himself by running his hand down one of the hind legs and feeling of a splint or little callus on the outside of the leg that he was the stolen horse. Justice Stewart happened there about the same time and issued the necessary papers and deputized Mr. E.D. Wilson, the stock tender at the Rock Creek Station, to make the arrest. The arrest was made and the written description produced which proved the identity of Doddle and the horse, although he gave his name as Smith, end quote. As the men began walking from the courtroom, William made a last-ditch effort to escape. Quote, he whirled suddenly around and knocked Wilson down and jumped on him and tried to get hold of Wilson's pistol, which was in his scabbard. But Wilson held his pistol in its place and fought with his other hand and his feet as well he could. But his work was short, for Doddle broke and ran, and Wilson was soon on his feet and after him with his pistol cocked. The first pull missed him, but the second pull went off. Doddle, however, had stubbed his toe on stagebrush and fell when Wilson found that the ball passed directly over him, and he would have hit him fairly had it not been for his accidental fall, end quote. It's a lucky break for William there. Yeah, close call. The commotion brought together several men in the area who rushed over, surrounding William with their pistols aimed square on him. He remained on the ground until they fastened a chain to his leg and ordered him to get up and march to the stagecoach where he was taken to Sheriff Agnew and his hands were dressed, quote, with a nice pair of steel wristlets, end quote. The article detailing this exciting event ended by applauding the sheriffs, Race and Agnew, and particularly Mr. Wilson and Mr. Trotter for their vigilance. William did not plead guilty and was tried by a jury. He was found guilty and convicted in the December 1875 term of court of grand larceny and sentenced to imprisonment in the penitentiary for two years beginning December 21st. According to Nathaniel Langford, William promised that he would kill Charles Trotter, who oversaw Rock Creek Station, when he got out of prison. The Idaho statesman made a jab a week later as William entered the penitentiary a second time saying he had, quote, suspended the business of horse stealing for two years and taken up his quarters at Joseph Pinkham's boarding house near this city, end quote. This boarding house, of course, the territorial prison, which William had just left for his first horse stealing endeavor. Newspapers noted that the territorial prison held 18 prisoners in 1876, including 15 white men and three Chinese men. Again, Men were confined to their small cells all day. A report on August 31, 1875, titled The Unfortunate, described the conditions as clean and airy and as, quote, comfortable as possible under the circumstances. It is a pity, however, that work cannot be found for the poor devils. They can earn their own living and not be a charge to the nation or territory. As it is, they suffer the horrors of almost perpetual confinement. The idleness in which they are kept will eventually break down their constitutions, and when their sentences expire, they will not be able to labor, but will return to dishonest paths, end quote. So this sentiment can be heard throughout the prison's history and even to this day. Finding work for incarcerated people that's fulfilling, self-sustaining, aims to improve someone continues to be a focus and a barrier. 
William sat in his cell for two years and probably focused on exacting revenge on Mr. Trotter for getting him locked up a second time. Now, compound this time in prison with a note from the LDS Church website stating that William and Esther divorced while he was incarcerated in 1876. It seems that the lack of work was becoming apparent. So, in October 1876, $1,500 was appropriated to build a fence around the prison. In January 1877, a special joint committee was appointed to inspect the prison. They interviewed all the prisoners and reported that the prison was large enough to house all of the territorial prisoners in Idaho for the foreseeable future, and it was sanitary, well-ventilated, had plenty of light, and prisoners received proper clothing, quality food, medical treatment, and any extra punishment for rule-breaking happened seldomly and was humane. Overall, the prison was in good working order. They noted that there was still no work for prisoners and that the shackles being used were worn out and defective and could be updated, but otherwise the territorial prison was effective. In 1877, things began to change. The 12-foot fence was erected around the prison, and by September of that year, Marshal Joseph Pinkham finally opened the, the quarry for prisoners to work. Their first job was to replace the rough brick floor with large flagstones, quote, that will last a century. This improvement to the penitentiary building will be done with little or no cost to the government, end quote. Fortunately for William, he never had to toil in the prison sandstone quarry. With good time accrued, which was essentially every day he went without getting into trouble, he was allowed part of a day off of his sentence, William Dowdle was released from prison on August 26, 1877. According to Nathaniel Langford, William got a job with a freighter named Johnson. The freighter trekked east, making its way to Rock Creek, where William would once again cross paths with Charles Trotter and other station attendants. Now, Charles Trotter had spent time in Boise that September. He left around September 15th and returned home to Rock Creek Station. By some lucky chance, he caught typhoid fever. <laughs> On September 17th, William rolled into Rock Creek with his freighter team, just under two years of prison and the divorce of his wife probably weighing heavily on him. He asked where Mr. Trotter was and heard that he was sick in bed. William decided to alleviate his anger by drinking. A write-up by R.H. Gillespie printed in the Deseret News and dated from the Oakley Station, Idaho, September 17, 1877, explains what took place next. Allow me to take the liberty of informing you of a fatal shooting affray which occurred in my presence. On the 15th of the month, I was in H. Stricker's store on Rock Creek, Boise State Road, when William Doddle came into the store in company with three other men, Teamsters. Soon after, a dispute arose and Doddle was a disinterested party, but he took the part of one of the other men and drew a pistol and said he wanted to keep the peace. He then turned to one Mr. Norton and said, I know you. Norton said, maybe so. Doddle says, you son of a bitch, I know you, and I will kill you. Norton made no reply. He then drew his pistol on me and swore he would kill me. I got out of his way and his comrades caught him in time to prevent his firing. He then turned to the clerk of the store, one Charles Walgmont, and said to him, I'll kill you, you son of a bitch. The clerk retreated into the back room. After repeating he would shoot every person in the store several times, Doddle again turned to Norton and said, I'll give you five minutes to leave the store and... If you do not go, I will kill you. Norton started, and Doddle followed him and told him to come back or he would shoot him. 
but Norton had started, and he took leg bail for it, and I think he saved his life by it. Doddle then went out into the road about 20 yards distant and sat down and commenced firing at a man by the name of Spencer, who was about 100 yards distant. The first shot took effect under the hollow of the right arm. He then turned and commenced shooting at the store door. Charles Wagamot, the clerk, was standing on the porch and started to run into the house. Meeting two other men in the door, he turned around and saw Doddle with his pistol presented at him. Wagamot drew his pistol instantly and fired at Doddle, killing him. Doddle excluded, Oh God, I'm gone. He then said, This is my last layout and find. I was a desperado and a bad man. He drew a long breath and expired. I have since heard that Doddle was once a Mormon and that he had a wife and two children living in Franklin Cache Valley, Utah. If it is so, I truly sympathize with her and the little ones. I hope they will not blame the man that fired the shot, as it could not have been avoided. Yours truly, R.H. Gillespie. So just to make sure I'm understanding this correctly, Wagmont and Norton weren't directly responsible for sending him away, Uh -uh. but had some... Dodley felt like they had some guilt, even Mm -hmm. though they weren't... It was those other two men that got him convicted. Right, yeah. So it's like they're clerks at the station, and so they are connected to Charles Trotter, who he really wanted to exact revenge on. So there's a connection to Trotter, but like really these are not the guys that... Exactly. His anger is directed kind of at the wrong men. Yeah. Oh, man. What a way to go. Right. And this guy was seen as a villain. Well, and with a lot of people pulling guns really easy, um, I've definitely read a lot of cases where people were shot for less. Oh, or, yeah. Or who made threats that were less vocal, uh-huh. or aggressions that were less vocal that ended in a gunfight. And I feel like the clerk did try to give him time to like calm down, get out of here, and that's obviously not what happened yeah i understand them shooting back not saying that i think that that is the answer but i understand that this guy's just being a, all drunk with a gun which don't don't do that like never do that yeah it's hard for everyone right it's hard for the people who end up accidentally killing him it's hard for the family it's hard i mean you never want that to happen it injures everybody involved and mm-hmm. all the victims all of the perpetrators, all of their families, uh, the whole system, society in mm-hmm. general. It's just, ah, uh, man. W- Wagmart has to live with the fact that he killed someone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. He's just this young guy who's just like yeah. doing his job and then, oh, man. Yeah. Just doing what he's asked to and because some guy is being a belligerent drunk. Yeah. You know, he ends up killing him. So... According to newspapers, William was actually buried that same afternoon in, quote, a rude coffin of pine with four handles of cords knotted into the sides was the single preparation. In this, the body, encased in Johnson's overcoat, which was his boss, was laid fully exposed, the cover of the box being laid aside until the conclusion of the ceremonies. No clergyman was present to conduct the exercises, and no layman was in a condition to offer a prayer or read the scriptures. The exigency could only be supplied by vocal music. 
and in the absence of hymn books, it was thought to be exceedingly proper and befitting the occasion for all to join in an old California refrain titled The Days of 49. Nathaniel Langford wrote that the funeral procession turned into a bit of a drunken revelry. When William's boss, Johnson, realized in his drunken stupor that his overcoat was on William, he let go of one of the handles, raised the body out of the coffin, and pulled the overcoat off William and struck it back over his shoulders. No, he did not. The singing and marching continued. Langford printed the lyrics he could remember from the funeral. So Johnson's coat got laid like probably like a shroud, like over his body and face over and didn't have to look at this guy. And then um, as they're carrying him out, he was like, wait a minute, don't bury my coat. And um, but he was carrying him well. And so like they dropped it or he dropped his edge of the coffin when he went for the coat. Uh, Interesting. Nathaniel Langford printed the lyrics he could remember from the funeral. Auto Bill was a hard old case. He never would repent. He never was known to miss a meal. He never paid a cent. Old Auto Bill, like all the rest, he did to death resign. And in his bloom went up the flume in the days of '49. Old Otto Bill was a hard old case, he never would repent. He never was known to miss a meal, he never paid a cent. Old Otto Bill, like all the rest, he did to death resign. And in his bloom went up the flume in the days of Thus concludes the story of William Doddle. Today, mm. visitors to Rock Creek Station and the Stricker Home site can visit the cemetery where they will see the following inscription about William. 1877, William Doddle, a convicted horse thief who was lain when he tried to take vengeance on the people of Old Rock Creek for his capture in 1875. According to Ancestry.com, William's wife, Esther, remarried two years later in 1879 and again in 1890 and died in 1918. Hmm. The Friends of Stricker host Stricker After Dark every year, where they tell these stories and allow paranormal investigating equipment for one night. This year, it falls this Friday, October 13th, 7.30 to 11 p.m., $5 per person, They have a campfire and concessions for purchase. And if you are a listener in central Idaho, all of you Twin Falls listeners, put it on your schedule. Also, tune in this Saturday to a Stool Pigeon Saturday interview with Jennifer Hills, president of the Friends of Stricker, to learn more. And that is William Doddle. It was quite the trek. And thank you all for sticking with me because, wow, there's a lot of backstory that I had to really dig into Mm. how old was he when he died about 40 yeah it's a lot it's a lot to pack in in such a short life yeah Yeah. obviously there there there's so many examples of gallo humor in the site in locations all across idaho but this is truly an example of one of those like really macabre post-mortem the exhibition of a corpse of the 
this person who's died in ways that are so irreverent, so shocking to modern days of like parading someone's body because yeah. it is someone's body and and well i think that's that's really left a leftover cultural thing from the civil war yeah um, i think because death was so common back then they had a very different way of dealing with it than we do now like now I remember um, during my grandfather's funeral, like, I was like, I can't look at... He had an open casket, and I was like, I can't look at him. But they just had a very different relationship with death because it was so much more common. Like, granted, he was president, but, like, President Lincoln's body went on, like, two-week tour or something. Like, there's something, I think, for these people about, even though, you know, he was the one who kind of was messing around and, and... ended up getting killed for his efforts, I think that there's some way that they understand death differently by seeing the body and sort of paying one last respect, almost like, I don't think this is how how they describe it, but like kind of to their face and seeing that last remnant of this person that they knew. I think think the Civil War changed a lot about how people dealt with death um, until it became less of a, a common event in everyone's lives. Yeah. You know, what's what's interesting, in Langford's book, he actually was traveling with a companion, an Englishman, who was just exploring the West, and he witnessed this and was just gobsmacked. He was just like, are, are you kidding me? Is this how they bury people in America? You are all backwards. I think that there was a proximity to death that, that people at that time period had that they were navigating regularly, but... I mean, it was still a Puritan society, you know, basis. Like, you still honor the dead. And this is the only example I've ever come across from this time period where they were so disrespectful in no tradition and no clergy being involved in all of this. Mm, Like, even here at the prison, they would they would have a clergyman preside and and allow final rites over over prisoners even if they were in for you know heinous heinous things and were intentionally being forgotten and left in a prison cemetery embalming started after the civil war and so before american style embalming started people would bury their own dead they would uh-huh. dress they would prepare it and so people were so much more intimate with the dead than we are Uh but i also anthony's right in in the the display of specifically outlaws in the west you guys have seen the photos of the final whiskey shot from the there's a guy like 1906 i think who got caught and shot in a station and after he paid for a final drink and then got in a shootout before I drank it. And so afterwards, all of the cowboys got drunk and they went and dug him up and they fed him his final shot of alcohol. But the the shocking thing about it is a photographer came and took pictures of it. Wow. So, so if you want, I can show you. There's some really gruesome images of this that's outlaw's insane. final shot of whiskey. Jeez. See, but, that's, that to me is like, I don't think they did that. Well, actually, that's not true. They did. I mean, they did death masks. They did. They're, yeah, they're yeah. totally examples of it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. I uh, recently got a book of just outlaw photos of the Old West, and half of them are post-mortem photos. Oh, gosh. Yeah, it's so dark. Jeez. That's up on the top shelf. <laughs> yeah. Whoa. 
Great wow. job, Anthony. Job. That, was, yes. that was really, really interesting. Thank you, guys. Yeah. I tried my best to, to make this as close to the history as possible and let the documents kind of speak for themselves. But thank you. Yeah. So Bill Dowell is... Yeah. And he's in the cemetery. So we believe so. Okay. Yeah. There's some there's some very interesting <laughs> stories about the people who ended up in the cemetery and and if, yeah we have if somebody else had said no I think some of his family ended up taking his body and burying it somewhere else but I, I think maybe he's buried out in the cemetery wow. I can't say for certain but that's yeah I've never heard that uh, yeah and the interesting thing is is that so Charlie Walgamot who is Lucy Stricker's brother was actually that clerk. And he tells that story in a book that he wrote, um, in some articles that he wrote a long time ago. But he doesn't actually name the clerk. And I think it was probably because there was no statute of limitations on murder. And so maybe he thought he'd get in trouble. But he was actually the clerk. But, um, so, I mean, and everything you take with Charlie, you have to kind of take with a grain of salt. Because yeah. when he was reliving these experiences, he was it was the 1920s. And these had happened, you know, 50, 60 years before. All right, Sky. what do you have for us today? Well, um, I have something that's not quite as sad, I don't think, but certainly uh, is not a, a, the story of a, a woman who had an easy life. So today, I am covering number 5183 Delia Smith. Um, I didn't have a lot of sources for her. Her story uh, was was detailed um, pretty thoroughly in her inmate file, and she was harder to find. So sources are her inmate file, which again can be found just down the road from the penitentiary at the Idaho State Archives, Ancestry.com records, Newspaper.com records, AGCareers.com, the 1930s gangster movies list on IMDb.com, and IMDb articles on Public Enemy and G-Men. So, Delia Smith was born on July 10th, 1911 in northern Idaho, probably on or near the Nez Perce Indian Reservation, to Samson Smith and Priscilla Corbett Smith. Both of her parents were enrolled members of the Nez Perce tribe, of course, making Delia a member of the tribe as well. In August 1907, her father, Samson, was arrested for stealing a steer with an accomplice, Jesse Spotted Eagle. The two had stolen the property of J.G. Austin and took it to the butcher at Kuski, where they received $20 for it. During the preliminary trial, Jesse Spotted Eagle needed a translator as he couldn't understand English, though it seems that Samson could. Despite the fact that the butcher claimed he did not see the A that Austin claimed was branded on the stolen animal, and testimony from both Jesse and Samson that if they did take Austin's steer to the butcher they hadn't stolen it, they were still sent to trial. I could not find any resolution to this charge in the newspapers, but Samson was actually received at the Idaho State Penitentiary on March 26, 1908 as number 1416. It does not appear that Jesse Spotted Eagle was incarcerated for this same crime. So that's her father, uh, but Delia herself was the eighth of nine children. She had two older brothers, four older sisters, and one younger sister. So Samson died in 1913, and Priscilla remarried two years later in 1915 to Joseph W. Cook. Priscilla and Joseph went on to have two more children. They had one son and one daughter. Indian census rolls and U.S. census records between 1919 and 1933 show the family living on the Nez Perce Reservation near Lapway, Idaho. Delia's childhood is difficult to keep track of. Overall, it seems that her household was fairly stable. 
Census rolls always place her in her mother's household with all of her family members. Of course, we don't know what the day-to-day might have looked like, so it may have been more chaotic than the rolls are showing, but it seems that for the most part, the family was pretty stable. According to Priscilla's obituary, she was a prominent member of the tribe, so the family was likely quite well-respected throughout the area. Between 1920 and 1930, Joseph became a Presbyterian minister, so the household was probably pretty religious. The Nez Perce prosecuting attorney claimed that Delia spent a term in St. Anthony Industrial School for quote-unquote juvenile delinquency, but I couldn't find any records to verify or explain when or why she might have landed there, and if I recall correctly, this is the only time this is mentioned, so I don't know if that is actually the case. The first mention that we find of her in newspapers comes from September 1925, when she was 14 years old. Delia, along with several other prominent members of the tribe, including men named Simon Matthew, Willie Wapshila, and Lizzie Smith, who was no relation to Delia as far as I could tell, at least not yet, had gone to a rodeo in Lewiston. For some reason that's not clear at all, they allowed 14-year-old Delia to drive. I'm wondering if it's because they were drinking, but again, I don't want to make any assumptions, but they did let this 14-year-old drive. The Spokane Chronicle said that this was indeed the first time she had ever driven a car. At at around 4 p.m., Delia lost control of the car going around a turn, and the car plunged over an embankment, falling 50 feet. Lizzie managed to jump out of the car prior to the plunge, but unfortunately, Simon and Willie were killed instantly. Delia herself badly lacerated her leg, but overall managed to survive with fairly minor injuries. And this, understandably, was a tragedy for the community. Both Simon and Willie were married with children, and the Spokane Chronicle said they were both well-educated, and the Spokesman Review stated they were all well-known members of the tribe. I wonder if this is why she was sent to St. Anthony for ostensibly a manslaughter charge, but I don't think I would call that juvenile delinquency, and also I can't say for sure that's what it was for, but it seems like that could possibly have been a reason that she spent time at St. Anthony, Um, but again, don't know. The Spokane Chronicle also said that Delia was the daughter of William Smith, but we know this isn't true. So the reason that they might have thought that she was the daughter of William Smith is because in the 1930 census, Delia was living with William Smith and his family as a rumor. So Lizzie Smith, also in the accident, was William's daughter. So as I said, I couldn't find any immediate relationship between them in terms of shared relatives, but regardless, the two Smith families must have been fairly close. And I'm not sure why she was living with them as a rumor, but she was. So next we know of her from the 1933 India Census Rolls. She was still with William Smith and his family, but now her name is listed as Delia Smith Smith, and she's listed as William Smith's daughter-in-law. This is because Delia was married to one of William's sons, but doesn't specify which one. I would guess that she was married to Joseph Smith, who was a year older than Delia. So this is the only time I ever found anything about the marriage between Delia and Joseph, but that, uh, that is something that is there to consider. Now, American Indian communities tend to be tightly intertwined in ways that we don't often see in white communities, so there are several connections that I couldn't quite figure out, but that I know existed in Delia's life. And one of those was a connection to the Braun Show family. And if that name seems familiar, the prison unfortunately housed several Braun Shows, and, and we'll get to at least one young woman with the name Braun Show. 
According to the records of the people who corresponded with Delia while she was incarcerated, she communicated with Emma Bronshow, so at the very least they were friends if they weren't related in some way. Now, Emma Bronshow in 1920 lived with her family at her brother-in-law's property in cul-de-sac, and Emma's brother-in-law was named William Alfie, and William had a son named Dan Alfie. Dan also resided on the Nez Perce Reservation in cul-de-sac, less than 10 miles away from Lapway. Now, I'm not exactly sure how, but probably just by association, Delia began spending some time with Dan. And as we often see, Dan does not appear to be the best influence on Delia. In 1933, he'd been arrested and sent to the Idaho State Penitentiary on forgery charges, serving a year and a half before his release in October 1934. A year later, on October 13, 1935, the Statesman Journal from Salem, Oregon, reported on another crime that Dan had committed. Quote, Two persons were taken into custody here tonight on information of the sheriff's office at Lewiston, Idaho, that a stolen car was heading in this direction. The two told city officer Jack Chronicle that their names were Dan Alford, or Alfrey, and later iterations of the article would correct this, and the other person named was Delia Smith. According to several newspapers, including the Statesman Journal, the Spokane Chronicle, and the Spokesman Review, here is the full story. A man named J.L. Frankham was driving on the highway near Sweetwater in northern Idaho near the border of Washington when a flashlight shone in his eyes from the side of the road. Now, Frankham was a grain buyer from Portland, Oregon, and grain buyers build relationships with producers to make fair deals and get good prices for the company that they work for. So he was out probably driving, you know, in rural northern Idaho. So he saw this flashlight. He pulled over and picked up Dan Alfrey and Delia Smith, who were reportedly hitchhiking. Now, almost as soon as the couple got into the car, Dan pulled a gun and held it to Frankham's head. The original article from the Statesman Journal stated that Frankham fainted at this point, while the Spokane Chronicle said that the couple forced him to drive while at gunpoint. Now, regardless of what happened, the three of them drove about seven miles before pulling over at an abandoned house near cul-de-sac. There, they tied Frankham up in an isolated barn on the property, stole $70 and his personal effects before driving away in his car. After some time, Frankham managed to free himself and ran to the nearest home, that of Mr. and Mrs. John George, who lived in the cul-de-sac area. Meanwhile, Dan and Delia drove two miles to Dan's house, where they changed clothes before getting back on the road in Frankham's car. The next day, the two were arrested in the Dalles, Oregon, after Lewiston police sent out a bulletin to be on the lookout for the car. Dan and Delia were originally charged with kidnapping and robbery, but by the time they were placed in the county jail, the kidnapping charge had been dropped. Neither one of them could furnish their $5,000 bond that had been set, and so they remained in the Nez Perce County Jail until their trial. On October 25, 1935, both pleaded guilty, and their sentencing was scheduled for two days later. During the sentencing hearing, Dan asked that Delia not be charged or sentenced, quote, as she had not participated in the kidnapping, only after he had threatened her with bodily harm if she did not assist him, end quote. And so Dan continued on to explain the motivations for the crime. He had sold some property for $750 three months to the crime, but had since, quote-unquote, drank it all up, end quote. Now, $750 in 1935, do you guys want to take a guess as to how much money this is in 2023? $3,000. Great Depression, I'll guess 20000 Oh, Sam, you're getting very good at this game. $16,000. Nice. Is, Almost there. Is, is what he got paid for this property, which is so much alcohol. 
Um, yeah. And he, he reportedly said, quote, I drank anything that I could get a hold of, end quote. Wow. That's sad. After his release from the state penitentiary on his forgery charge, so the first time he went, he resolved to, quote unquote, go clean. But after one drink of whiskey, he got access to a gun and it was over. So I do want to pause here for just a second um, because there's a there's an interesting article that I found that ties Delia to gangsterism. Now, gangsterism in the 1930s is all over popular culture. I'll talk a little bit more about this in the Cora Atkinson episode. But in the early 1930s, there were three major films that were released that dealt really honestly and openly with the criminal underworld. And it... I mean, took off like gangbusters. Everyone loved all this gangster stuff. And this is also the time of Al Capone. Um, a lot of the mafia, like organized mafia gang stuff is going on. And so th- it's just all over. And so I find this article very interesting because it's almost as if they're trying to take this story and make it fit into this popular culture mold because it sells. Everyone is obsessed with this. So... Again, 1935, during the sentencing, Judge Miles S. Johnson said, quote, Idaho is a poor place to practice Chicago gangster methods. Our state law should be changed so that a pardon board could not pardon a crime of violence for gain, end quote. So capitalizing on the statement, the Spokesman Review had titled this article, quote, Gang Methods Out in Idaho, Judge Sentencing Indian Bandit and Mall Comments on Pardons, end quote. So Mall is the term, the 1930s term for a gangster's girlfriend, M-O-L-L. I've never heard that. That's interesting. Yeah, me either. Okay, I have to be honest with you. I'm learning that the more I do a PhD, the more I think everyone knows things that I know which is very short-sighted of me because I for sure thought everyone knew what a gangster's mall was and every single person I've told that to has been like, I've never heard that before. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so a, a gangster's mall is a girlfriend. So they're basically, in this uh, spokesman review article, they are saying that Dan Alfrey is a gangster and Delia is his mall. Hmm. And I think... That that's a pretty big exaggeration. I could not find any evidence of it being connected to like crime activity, but because the judges he's calling anything that is uh, violence for gain, he's calling it gangsterism. Basically, they're they're just they're really capitalizing on the fact that this is uh, hugely popular at the time. D- is malls short for something? Like I don't think so. Originally, it is a 17th century pet form of the name Mary kind of thing. Could also mean prostitute. It also meant female companion, not bound by ties of marriage, but often a life mate. That's from the Mm. early 19th century. Progressive. Um, (laughs) And then it became a general word for woman in old underworld slang. For instance, mall buzzer is a pickpocket who specializes in women, or a mall tooler is a female pickpocket. The U.S. sense of a gangster's girlfriend comes into play in 1923. That's cool. Interesting. Shout out to the online etymology dictionary, which is etymonline.com. I love etymology, you guys. I'm such a nerd. We're a good company. (laughs) I I appreciate it. (laughs) So... In fact, in 1935, there are at least four movies with gangster themes released. Now, again, I talk a little bit more about the earlier gangster stuff in the coming Cora Atkinson episode, so uh, stay in tune for that. 
But these ones are very interesting because one starred a an actor named James Cagney. It's called G-Men. Now you'll find this out. James Cagney actually helped define the gangster genre with his starring turn in 1932's film Public Enemy, where he played a quote-unquote street punk trying to make his way in organized crime. And Public Enemy is one of the films that censors really wanted to crack down on, and part of the reason that the film industry got a massive industry-changing code in 1934 was because these movies glorified the criminal's life. And so everyone was very concerned about these morals making their way into American society and suddenly we're going to be overrun with immoral gangsters. So this is where he, he started. But in G-Men, Cagney plays a G-Man, which is a federal agent in the early years of the FBI. And the censorship crackdowns starting in 1934 literally led an original movie gangster to switch sides to the government, which is interesting. So again, that's I find that interesting because this is the era that I study. So anyway, thank you for joining me on that tiny little rabbit hole. Not a gangster's mall. Arguably, Dan Alfrey is not a gangster. But he does get sentenced to 15 to 30 years at the Idaho State Penitentiary, while Delia was sentenced to 5 to 10 years. According to the Spokesman Review, Dan smiled defiantly during his sentencing, but when Delia was sentenced, quote, his face flushed with anger, his eyes darted fire, and his fists clenched when he heard sentence pronounced for Delia. How can he do that when she isn't guilty, he shouted in perfect English. He called the judge unmentionable names in an undertone as he was remanded to the custody of the sheriff, end quote. In the same article, quote, Delia Smith's face was expressionless and only the nervous twisting of her handkerchief showed any emotion, end quote. Both entered the Idaho State Penitentiary on October 28, 1935. So here is her intake form. Number 5183, Delia Smith, age 24, born July 10, 1911, uh, nativity, Idaho, occupation, housekeeper, hair, dark brown, Complexion dark, weight 109, height 59 and one half inches, build short, color red, which again is referencing her native heritage. Single, yes, and then it lists her teeth as poor, and her eyes are dark brown. Her bertillion is pretty sparsely marked up. She has a vaccination scar, scars near her left eyebrow and temple, one scar in each arm, and just one scar on the back of her left thigh. Upon her intake, the Nez Perce prosecuting attorney wrote of Delia, quote, Prisoner took a hard attitude towards society, expressing a lifelong hatred of all officers, concurring in Dan Alfrey's opinion that it would have been much better had they killed the man they held up. She also expressed the opinion that anyone was justified in killing officers, end quote. This is the only time I see this attitude mentioned, and maybe she did actually say this, but if she did, it may have been in the heat of the moment, because it doesn't seem that she holds this attitude or says anything like this ever again. The prosecuting attorney believed her to be a menace to society, saying she had criminal tendencies, but, quote, needs someone to lead her, end quote. Again, I don't know where they're getting the idea that she was she had criminal tendencies because other than the accident that she was in when she was 14, there's no mentions in the newspaper or in her file even that she was mentioned in any other crime. So it does seem to be a lot of bias toward this gangster narrative that just, again, does not seem to hold up. When she entered the women's ward, she was the seventh inmate to come in at this time, though one of them was Mary Crumroy, who again I cover in A Stool Pigeon Saturday between episode 33 and 34, who was likely kept at State Hospital South at this time. 
Another inmate she came in with was our very favorite, Lida Southard from episode 10, as well as Angela Hopper from episode 54. She would serve with another 11 inmates in her time, including Mary Turner Handsome, who I covered in episode 74, but obviously not all 18 women she served with were in at the same time. Per usual, her time in the women's ward is fairly unknown. According to the 1937 Warden's Biennial Report, Delia earned $150 while in prison, which is the first time I've heard of a woman inmate earning money while in prison. I'm not sure what she did to receive that money. I don't know if maybe she uh, did some secretary work or some... I'm, I'm not sure, but it's pretty cool that she earned some money while she was in. Okay, Sam, $150... 1935. Go and say like $700. Oh, a little off that time. It was about $3,200, which is wow. so much money. Yeah. She made a lot of money while she was in prison. So she also pretty consistently received correspondence from several members of her family, including two of her sisters, Joe, someone named Joe Smith, who was presumably her ex-husband, and Nancy Alfrey, who was Dan's older sister. So she must have been pretty close to the Alfrey family. And I think overall, she had a really good support system around her. A lot of her family wrote her while she was incarcerated. And overall, I think she was very close to her family and friends. Her first application for pardon comes on August 7th, 1936. And here's the note that she sent to the Board of Pardons. Quote, I have never been in trouble in the past that has warranted any punishments of this nature. At the time of the act for which I was committed, I did not realize the enormity of the crime. I am most sincerely sorry that I was ever connected with such an affair. My oldest sister has had a major operation and is unable to care for her large family and her household duties. She has six young children, and I am the only one who is physically able to assist her in the work of the home. I have two other sisters who have been very ill in the hospital. The younger one is still in a sanitarium in Lapway. In granting a pardon, you can be assured that I am determined not to be drawn into any further trouble. I shall keep my conduct above reproach. Your favorable consideration of my case will be most deeply appreciated by my family and self, end quote. Now, this pardon was actually denied. So she applies again in, at the May 1937, so about six months later, applies at the meeting of the Board of Pardons. Again, here's her note, quote, I most kindly ask your honorable board for a pardon or a commutation of my sentence. My oldest sister has been seriously ill and finds that the care of her home and six children too much for her physical condition, and it is my earnest desire to be allowed to go to her assistance, and upon being released, it is my intention to go to her at once. I am truly sorry that I have in any way been involved in anything that caused me to be here, and I wish to assure the board that in giving me my freedom that my conduct will be above reproach and I will always lead an industrious and respected life. Your kind consideration will be deeply appreciated by both my family and myself, end quote. And I, I think that both of these notes have been really sincere. She does really seem to have been sorry to have been involved. And I just don't think she's... a bad person, maybe someone who just got some bad luck or had some unfortunate things happen to her, acting rashly with a man who kind of led her astray. I think both of these letters also demonstrate that the prosecuting attorney's claim that she had had a lifelong hatred of officers and that anyone was justified in killing officers was perhaps influenced by Dan Alfrey's actions rather than any of her actions or any of her personal beliefs. 
The board, parole board, agreed with her letter and her parole plan, and at the July 1937 meeting, they granted Delia a conditional pardon effective July 20th, 1937. She was released from the prison on that very day. She served one year, eight months, and 22 days of a five to ten year sentence. Here are the explicit conditions of her parole. Quote, on the condition that she refrain from the use of intoxicating liquors and that she observe all of the laws of the state of Idaho and that she obtain employment and lead the life of an upright law-abiding citizen and that the said Delia Smith report once a month for a year to the sheriff of the county where she makes her residence. These reports to be made upon the first and fifth of each month and the sheriff in turn is to report to the parole officer and that upon her failure to keep each and every of these terms and conditions of this pardon, she immediately forfeits all rights thereunder and shall be returned forthwith to the Idaho State Penitentiary to serve her original sentence. Now, these are all very normal conditions for conditional paroles. So upon her release, she returned up north to be near her family. According to the Spokesman Review, on January 26, 1939, Delia was arrested with a man named Von Bybee in Lewiston. They were each fined $300 and sentenced to 30 days in jail for unlawful cohabitation as, quote, the couple has been living together in Lewiston, it was alleged. Bybee's wife is also a resident of this district, end quote. Now, unless you're a big nerd like me who knows a lot about the women's ward of the penitentiary, the name Bybee might not mean anything to you. But Anthony, does that name seem familiar at all? Or even Samuel? Yes. <laughs> Well, because I've spent so much time with these ladies, I do know that in the women's ward, there was an inmate whose name was Althalia Bybee. I wasn't sure if Delia and Althalia had been in the penitentiary together, but they were, actually. Huh. Althalia came in in May 1936, about six or seven months into Delia's sentence. So, of course, my immediate thought was, did Delia steal or take up with Althalia's husband? The short answer, thankfully, is no. Oh my gosh. Here's the long answer, though. This was a rabbit hole I did not mean to go down, but I cannot help. So, Ophelia's <laughs> husband was named Earl Robert Bybee. However, I do believe that Vaughn and Earl were cousins. They both can trace direct lineage from Byron Lee Bybee. Byram was Vaughn's great-great-grandfather and Earl's great-grandfather. So, I think... if. I understand how this works correctly. That would have made them second cousins once removed. In other words, Earl was second cousins with Vaughn's father. So anyway, Vaughn at the time was married. He was married to Elizabeth Bronshow, who was probably related to Emma Bronshow, who Delia wrote while she was incarcerated. Again, the Bronshows are a prominent family on the Nez Perce Reservation, especially at this time. Dan's mother was a Bronshow, and this is not the last time in the podcast you'll hear about this family. Interestingly, despite the fact that the Spokesman Review said they only had to serve 30 days, both Vaughn and Delia apparently were not released until September. They were sentenced in January. They were not let out until September. The 1940 census lists Vaughn and Elizabeth as still married, but by 1950, the couple were separated. So even though Delia and Vaughn eventually parted ways, not sure when, the Bybee marriage was clearly not perfect. So from this point forward, most of the things I found about Delia are from Washington State, which is not uncommon for people from the northern panhandle. Lewiston, for example, is only five minutes from the Washington border. So in April 1944, she was arrested and charged with vagrancy under the name Delia Smith Cole, 
but if Cole is a married last name, I don't know who she's married to. For this, she was fined $15 and given a suspended sentence on the condition that she leave town. On March 13, 1945, the Spokesman Review reported that Delia and the most Irish-named person ever, Patrick O'Day, had filed for a marriage license in Spokane, and they married on March 23rd of 1945. Delia O'Day, that's cool. Delia O'Day is a great name, right? That sounds gangster. (laughs) It's a good name. (laughs) Just a few weeks later, the O'Days were arrested with a man named Ray Richardson in Walla Walla. All three were charged with disorderly conduct and fined $5. Jeez. The rest of her life is a little difficult to fully figure out. She was arrested in Yakima, Washington in February 1946 under the name Delia Cole, which again was the the name she was arrested under about two years before. This time she was arrested on drunk charges. She was given a 30-day suspended sentence and handed over to the Department of Corrections two days after her arrest. I'm not sure how this charge was resolved, but she was out of jail if she ever went into it by October. And we know that because on October 10th, 1946, she was arrested under the name Delia Hub in Walla Walla for the charge of drunk in a public place. She was arrested with a man named Dewey Hub, who was charged with drunk driving. Of course, the shared last name would indicate that the couple were married, but I couldn't find any record of when that might have happened. And I don't even really know who Dewey Hub is. I found a Dewey Hobbs who lived in Washington all of his life, but the details of this Dewey Hobbs doesn't match up with what little information that the prison records included about Delia's Dewey, so insert shrug emoji here. (laughs) She also spent time in the Chelan County Jail, but not for very long as far as I could tell. And that's really all I could find of her. Her mother's obituary from 1965 listed three living daughters, none of whom were Delia. And so this, of course, would seem to indicate that she had passed away sometime between 1946 and 1965, but I couldn't find any records of her after 1944. Uh, And just real quickly, um, Dan's here's Dan's sort of end of his story. So he applied for parole several times, starting as early as 1935. He did have an application denied in July 1942. However, by November 1942, he was out on parole, so I don't know when his parole was granted. He didn't stay on parole for long because the Spokesman Review reported on November 5th that Dan, being held in the Kootenai County Jail on a federal firearms charge, had escaped from the county jail. What? The newspaper report said that he and his accomplice had made a hacksaw from the mainspring of an alarm clock and, quote, cloaked the noise of continual sawing at iron bars with a blanket, end quote. About two weeks after his escape, he suddenly and voluntarily surrendered himself to authorities from cul-de-sac, Idaho. On November 20th, the federal judge, Louis Schwellenbach, sentenced Dan to four years at the Idaho State Penitentiary for two charges, one for possession of a sawed-off shotgun without payment of federal taxes, to which he was sentenced to nine months in a federal road camp, and one for possessing and receiving a sawed-off shotgun, for which he got four years, and both of these sentences would run concurrently. This it was in Idaho, but because it was a federal charge, he likely served time in uh, McNeil Island. He was released by early 1947, at which time he married a woman named Marie Cornelius in cul-de-sac. The couple went on to have two children, and they lived in Walla Walla. 
Jan was arrested several times in Washington, mostly for various charges related to alcohol, and spent time in various county jails. Over the years, he married at least two more times before his death in 1990. So, that is our number 5183, Delia Smith. Nice. Wow. Delia O'Day. Delia O'Day, the gangster's mall. Yeah. I find with researching people, especially the ends of people's lives, you only can find them if if they're doing something bad. Mm. Like you don't find like okay. their day to day stuff. You don't find like happy stuff that's like happening in their family or so, their lives. I found a few that have like a that they kind of become productive citizens, and and there are yeah. some instances of that. But I agree, it, it is for people who tend to have really troubled pasts. The only like Dan, for example, he most of what I found of him was him being in county jails and being arrested and being fined yeah. and. Um, so yeah, you're definitely, definitely right. It's just yeah. easier to find or the, those are the things that come up in the newspapers more often. Well, and, and women pose an extra challenge as I've mentioned several times before, because when they get married, their name changes. Yeah. And so unless you can find verification that this Delia Smith that you find is in fact, you know, through all the different channels you have to research to make sure that this is the right Delia Smith or this is the right Delia O'Day or if she got married after Patrick O'Day, I couldn't find her last name. So these are the challenges, right, that we come up against both with old newspapers and, uh, you know, the fact that people could just change their names whenever they wanted, which I won't lie, sometimes seems kind of fun. (laughs) (sighs) But anyway, so yeah. Nice work, Sky. That's that sounds uh, difficult, but I feel like you you tracked her like really well, despite yeah, all of that. I try. Yeah. Yeah. Good job, Sky. Thank you, everybody. Uh, thanks for listening, and uh, we hope you you know stay out of trouble, drink responsibly this holiday yes, season, yes. and don't yes. wave your gun around. Do you leave your weapons at home. Yeah. Yes. Uh, don't drink and drive. Don't drink and shoot. Yeah. All right, everybody. Well, thank you all. Do your own time. Do your own number. Goodbye, everybody. (laughs) If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Not only do we get to hear your feedback about the show, but it helps others find us as well. If you're interested in finding out more about the podcast and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in today's episode, follow our Facebook group at Behind Gray Walls Podcast. And we have a podcast Instagram as well. You can find us on Instagram at Behind Gray Walls Pod.